your Bibles with us to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, we continue our verse by verse, chapter by chapter look at the gospel of Luke. Chapter 19, verses 28 through 44, finding the missing piece. Let me read it to you. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, For all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these words. And though we understand their historical context and in their prophetic context, we want to understand them in a personal way. We want to hear you speaking to us, talking to us, Lord, conversationally by the power of your Holy Spirit who's in this place. And so, Lord, help us to be open to receive from you, attentive, Lord, to hear from you, and give us a willingness to submit and obey you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. We call it Palm Sunday and describe it as the triumphal entry. It might be more accurate to call it Donkey Sunday and describe it as the tearful entry. Now, we call it Palm Sunday, this event that we read about, because in the Gospels of John and in Mark, the crowd is described as taking palm branches when they went to see Jesus. Why palm branches? Well, in their earlier national history, the Jews had waved palm branches when Judas Maccabeus overthrew Syrian oppression. The palm branch was stamped onto their coins in the period following that great victory. It became a symbol of patriotic, uh, a patriotic symbol, excuse me, of freedom. The crowd looked upon Jesus as the one who would overthrow Roman oppression and restore Israel as a sovereign nation. For his part, Jesus chose a donkey as his symbol. The donkey was ridden by kings during times of peace and not conflict. And so it was a symbol of peace. It was personal peace and not political freedom that Jesus was offering. And so 
a donkey was his symbol. As to describing it as the triumphal entry, Luke recorded in verse 41 that as Jesus drew nearer to the city, he wept over it. The word for wept is a strong word that means Jesus wailed or that he burst into sobbing. This happened as he was approaching. It happened openly in front of the crowd. While they were shouting their blessings, the Lord was sobbing convulsively. It was, in fact, a tearful entry. And so let's take a closer look at this donkey Sunday when Jesus made his tearful entry into Jerusalem. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you find the missing piece when you follow Jesus. Number two, you miss the missing piece when you dismiss Jesus. First of all, in verses 28 through 38, you find the missing piece when you follow Jesus. I really don't mean my use of the word donkey to be funny or in any way to be disrespectful. As careful observers of God's word, we can't help but note that the donkey occupies a very large part of this entry into Jerusalem. The first seven verses of the account in Luke are dedicated to this story about the donkey. All four Gospels mention the donkey. In contrast, only the Gospels of John and Mark briefly mention the waving of palm branches. When you read the four accounts, you discover that there was a donkey with a young foal or colt who had never been ridden or carried any burden. Both of them were brought to Jesus and he mounted the young foal as the donkey walked alongside Now, it's interesting to me, at least, how we can be so easily influenced more by tradition than by the word of God. And this gives us a chance to talk about that. The most famous donkey in scripture is one which probably never existed. It's the donkey which Mary rode as she and Joseph journeyed to Bethlehem while she was pregnant with Jesus. It might surprise you, it does every Christmas when we do the Christmas story, to learn that Scripture never mentions a donkey in conjunction with Mary and her journey to Bethlehem. There's no mention at all of her riding a donkey. We've put one in. We believe it to be true. The most famous donkey ought to be the one Jesus rode into Jerusalem. I remember when the kids were little. We had a cartoon that we showed every year. In fact, I think we probably have it. It's called Small One. And it's the story, the half-hour story of the donkey that Mary rode. Uh, And what it is is this little boy, he owns the donkey. It's a tearjerker. I just, just kill it. Loves this little donkey, but their family is so poor that they have to sell the donkey. And they go into town, and he's trying to find a buyer for the donkey. But they're all mean people, terrible people. They want to put burdens on the donkey or slaughter the donkey. And poor little small one, which is his name. I mean, it's just really sad until at the very end, while the boy is weeping, a man strides up and he offers to buy small one and turns out to be Joseph and he puts Mary on small one and they go off to Beth. Oh, it's so... uh, Never happened. (laughs) I guess it might have happened, but we think it happened because we, we think, well, that, you know, Mary, she ought to be riding a donkey instead of just walking along. And then here's Jesus, seven verses, every gospel talking about this famous donkey. And we don't like to think about Jesus riding a donkey. Our heroes don't ride donkeys. It's the difference between Matt Dillon and Festus. How many of you remember Gunsmoke? 
Matt Dillon, I mean, there's a man. I mean, no matter what you did to that guy, I mean, he... Whew. And then there was Fastish, who lives up in Clovis or did or something. I, he's a local guy, you know, Ken something. But anyway, I saw his picture at downtown Clovis and riding his mule, you know, with this big hat. I mean, he was a good guy, but... He wasn't Matt Dillon, if you know what I mean. And so we don't like to think about Jesus riding a donkey. That's not our preference. And these traditions, they get ingrained in your mind. You don't even really know what happened scripturally. And so we want to be careful. And so I'm not not trying to be funny. This is an important part of the story. Now, the donkey was also a deliberate fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to this from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. He said in chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was and is the king promised in this verse. Jesus came offering peace, peace between men and God, spiritual peace, eternal peace. He was and is just, and that means he alone is just and can be the justifier of sinners. He alone can declare that you've never sinned if you confess your sin to him and he forgives you your sin. Having salvation means that he alone can offer salvation. Zechariah says he was lowly. It means he was humble. And so that verse is a summary of his mission in his first coming. He came to make peace between God and man, and for that he had to come and humble himself to die on the cross for your sins so that he could justify you and save you, and he came on a donkey. Now, the donkey carried the material burdens of the poor. It was the animal of a poor person. And in our story, we'll see, you pass over it, but it says the owners of the donkey. It was owned by multiple families, probably. They were that poor. It carried the burdens of the poor, while Christ humbled himself and took on a life of poverty in order to carry the burden of of your sins. It's a beautiful illustration, a beautiful picture. The words in Zechariah predate Jesus by over 500 years. Jesus was deliberately fulfilling the symbolism, letting the people know he was their king. He was the one who had salvation. He was the one Zechariah saw and talked about. Now, the fulfillment of the prophecy was carried out in the real life exploits of two disciples. Let's not lose sight of the fact that the eternal plans and purposes God has for this planet all involve you and I and encourage us to obey him as he turns ordinary experiences into extraordinary exploits. And so in verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Guys, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Jesus' disciples were mostly common folk, mostly fishermen. They, would, they were known by the Pharisees and scribes as ignorant fishermen. This means they didn't have a lot of education, obviously. They weren't part of high society. But even the most common Jew, even an ignorant fisherman, knew the prophecy of Zechariah. They would have gotten excited about Jesus wanting to ride the foal into Jerusalem. 
I'm not so sure how excited they were about going to get the foal. Now, we see this as glorious, but this is really a, a call to them to walk by faith. As far as we can tell, they were to believe that a donkey and a foal would be right where Jesus said they would be. Jesus looked at them and he said, you guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into this city opposite us. And when you go there, you're going to see this. This is, and it's like, well, how do you know that Lord? But they didn't question the Lord. And then second, they were to go right up to the donkey and it's full, loose them and lead them back to where Jesus was. And third, they were to say nothing unless challenged by the owners or anyone else. And then they were to only repeat a phrase not really explain what they were doing. Hey, what are you doing with that donkey? The Lord has need of him. Some of you are horse people. Suppose you were out on a ride resting. Your horse is tied up. And two itinerant ministers from Calvary Chapel came up to your horses, untied them, and began to walk away. Boy, it would be all teeth and eyeballs between you and them. I mean, you'd be in a fight. These are horse thieves. This is not as easy as you think on first reading. So we have a tendency because we know these stories so well, or just because they're in the Bible, to think, wow, that would have been so cool to be those two disciples. <laughs> Maybe. I, don't th- I, I think this is an example of the Lord's humor. See, the Lord knows what's going on. He knew that the owners would be prepared ahead of time by God for the arrival of these disciples. Perhaps they had a dream that night. Perhaps a prophecy, we don't know. But there are examples in Scripture where God has already gone before you to prepare the hearts of others, and you have to just walk by faith. And so it could be that the owners got up that morning and over a cup of coffee, they said, hey, man, I had the weirdest dream last night. What was it? A couple of itinerant ministers from Calvary Chapel came and they... Uh, loosed our donkey and it's full and started to walk away and instead of being upset the lord said they will say to you the lord has need of him and we're to let them go and i could see the wife looking out the window saying honey you've got to see this because there they were and so it was something like that on both ends god working miraculously asking people to walk by faith now it's kind of interesting to speculate on how such an important event depended in a sense upon the simple obedience of two disciples god would have accomplished his will without them but he chose to use them they had to actually go be used of the lord and grow we believe that great prophetic truths are being revealed in our lifetimes the small day-to-day experiences of your life really are extraordinary exploits whenever the Lord sends you on an errand, however small you think it might be. We can start to think of our serving the Lord as extraordinary. The book of Acts really is just a bunch of stories of everyday, average, ordinary Christians filled with God's Holy Spirit who do what God tells them to do. And then amazing and wonderful things happen. Some, we would say, more amazing than others because they seem to involve miracles, signs, and wonders. Some do not. And, and I believe, and I think Scripture will justify this, that when God calls you into some service, I'm not talking about your lifetime of service, just little small things that God puts on your heart to do or to say, places to go, that they are just as extraordinary 
because God has ordained this from the beginning of time. I remember one time we were young Christians. We went with some friends of ours uh, to Calvary Costa Mesa to see uh, a concert. And we got there really early. It was a Saturday night. I forget what band was playing, you know, one of the Christian music bands. And, and uh, we got there early, right in the front of the line so that we could get really good seats. And then for some reason, I didn't understand, we ended up, we kept going by all of these fantastic seats. And we ended up way in the back of the auditorium. And we all looked at each other like, what are we doing here? Why did we stand in line to, you know, and so we thought, oh, who cares, you know. And so, and then about... Uh, towards the end when they were preaching the gospel about two-thirds of the way into it we start to have a burden for the couple that was in front of us and and we didn't know why and and we started talking to them as soon as the thing was over we ended up sharing christ with them it was fantastic we went out oh oh now we know why we passed up all those good seats and it was just the most exciting thing in the world to us as young christians that god god kind of said no no not there here and we sat right where god wanted us to sit so that he could minister to us and through us and i think that should happen in all of our lives all of the time i'm not saying it happens to me all the time don't get me wrong but this is the kind of expectation that we should have that our ordinary life can become extraordinary if we would just do the simple things that God asks us to do. Now, great prophetic truths are being revealed in our lifetime. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful time to be alive as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. And so anyway, there they were, untying the donkey and its foal, verse 32. So those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Now, I would have wanted to explain the entire situation. I might have, it would have been hard enough just to go. I mean, imagine yourself, would you do this? Would you do, if if the Lord said, I want you to go over to Gene's house, he's warming up his car in the driveway, just get in and start driving off. What are you doing with my car? The Lord has need of it. Oh, yeah? Citizen's arrest, (laughs) you know. But, uh. And if I had, I mean, I would have reasoned it out and I would have thought, okay, I'll, I'll, but I would have, and then if I saw the colt and it's full with, okay, this is good. Let's, yeah, hey, I, we're itinerant ministers for Jesus Christ. Have you heard of him? He's, he's this guy, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's trying to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. And, uh, he, and he does the wildest stuff. I mean, people are being raised from the dead. The deaf are getting their, you know, it, it's just, it's an amazing, it, just, Make a long story short, he needs your coal. I know it sounds funny, but would you mind? Could we? Could you borrow? It? I'm sure we'll bring it back. You know, and I'd have to go into this whole thing, and it would have taken all the fun out of it. And these guys, just as far as we can tell, they went up and they unloosed it. And hey, where are you going with our coal? The Lord has need of it. Now, in addition to being funny, it tells us that we don't have to explain how obeying God works and i think this is important the word of god has its own power for unbelievers it's the power of god unto salvation in the life of the believer it discerns between the soul and the spirit it empowers you to walk by faith and it supplies you with everything you need to live a godly life sometimes we get put on the defensive as christians 
People want to know how this works. If I come to know Jesus Christ, how is this going to work? What's going to happen in my marriage? What's going to happen in my job? Am I going to get healed? Whatever it is that they're going through. They want to know if it really works and how it works. We don't have to explain that. I don't know how it works. That might surprise you. How do you explain the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, a person, in, in your heart? We have a hard time even explaining it to people. It sounds like possession. I mean, people don't understand. We've talked for the last several weeks about the Christian language we learn. When you tell somebody, well, I have someone living inside of me. Yeah, there's a name for that. Schizophrenia, I think, is what it is. But, and so, you know, how do you explain the Christian life, really? I mean, you can explain certain things, and there's factual. I'm not saying it's an ignorant thing, but how do you explain the leading of the Holy Spirit? I always get into conversations where people ask me something, and I just say, you know, I give my answer, and they say, well, why? What's your basis for that? I don't know. I just don't have a leading. I'm just, I'm trying to talk to God about it, and he's not telling me anything about it. And people look at you, Christians, like, you just don't like me. That's some spiritual mumbo-jumbo for get out of my face, you know. And and, uh, I don't know how to explain the things of God in, in that dimension, and you don't have to either. I love, that's why I love the blind man who said to the religious leaders, look, you can ask me all day what happened. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they got so angry that they kicked him out of the synagogue because they couldn't hang with the truth, the simple truth of just following God. Explanations can sometimes become excuses. Instead, Just speak the word of God, which is essentially what these disciples did. The Lord said, go there, do this, say this. That's what they did. And when they they were asked, they spoke the words Jesus told them to speak, no more, no less, and it accomplished its purpose. We need to begin to trust the word of God in its power and not rely so much on our own explanations of it. Verse 35, then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Jesus sat upon and then tread upon their clothing. Travelers would wear a long outer garment that served as both a cloak and a blanket for when they stopped at night by the side of the road to camp. Clothing was extremely valuable, more so to them than it would be to us, poor as they were. They wouldn't have a lot of different outfits lot of different not too much in their closet as it were it was their way of symbolizing their submission to jesus their way of saying that everything they had symbolized by their clothing they were willing to lie uh, throw at his feet and let him walk upon for his glory now the things that you give to jesus or make available to him they have in a sense been trodden upon by the king when when you give something to the lord And he treads upon it. In a sense, you're bringing glory to him as he uses it. But sometimes we think that Jesus ruins what we offer him. See, there's two ways of seeing a donkey walking on your clothing. I mean, if you're you're really in touch with the Lord, like these people were, it's like, man, walk over my clothing, Lord. Let it be a carpet that reveals your glory. But you know, when you pick that thing up, it's full of donkey hoof prints. It's dirty maybe some other things as well. And, and uh, you know, it's not in very good shape. And there are times in our lives when we feel like we've given the Lord something, our lives or some part of our lives, and we get it back and it's all donkey printed. 
We've been kicked in the teeth by it. It's in the category of of an expectation we didn't have. But you know what? Whatever you give to the Lord, however you think you receive it back, God uses it to His glory and to your good. And so we just want to offer ourselves, the Bible says, living sacrifices as if we were laying down on the ground. Lord, just walk on me in the greatest sense. Use me, Lord. And so it's, it's interesting, these perspectives. Throwing down their clothing was also a makeshift way of preparing the road. Whenever a king or an important dignitary was coming to town, the road leading in would be repaired and prepared for him. It was more evidence of their desire to submit to his rule. We as Christians should engage in some road work. We should repair our hearts by confession and repentance, and we should prepare our hearts by prayer and praise. Whenever we're gathered as a crowd of believers, in a very real sense, the king is in our midst passing through and we want to be repaired and prepared for him verse 37 then as he was now drawing near the descent of the mount of olives the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise god with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest it was passover season many tens of thousands of pilgrims would be on the road to jerusalem Those ahead and those behind continually joined the disciples following Jesus. They shouted a portion of Psalm 118, but with a slight change. The psalm reads, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, anticipating their future king and Messiah. They apply it to Jesus, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying, flat out, this is the man, he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. They were expecting the king to bring peace with the power of heaven and establish glory. In other words, they were expecting the kingdom of heaven to be established on the earth. As we've seen and heard from Jesus, the kingdom would be delayed. In just a few days, the Jewish authorities would officially refuse and reject Jesus. Instead of political peace, there would be global conflict for the Jews. Global conflict that continues today as Israel is still missing the peace the followers of jesus would find the missing peace in their hearts jesus was crucified and then raised from the dead and as a result your sins can be put upon him and his righteousness can be given to you describing that beautiful spiritual transaction the apostle paul wrote this in the book of romans he said therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ Because Jesus died for your sins, took upon himself your punishment and the penalty of sin and rose from the dead. When you believe that by faith, the Bible says he justifies you. It's a legal term that means just as if you'd never sinned. And so from the point of view of heaven, when God looks at you, He sees you as if you'd never sinned because Jesus took your place and you believe that by faith. And therefore, you have peace with God. You know, when you're born into the world, as you're conceived and born, you are at war with God. Maybe you don't think so openly, but you're born a sinner with a sin nature, separated from God, at war with God. The word the Bible uses, enmity. It's a conflict between enemies. If peace is going to be made, it has to be made by God with you. And it's been made through Jesus Christ. Jesus made the peace 
so that you and I can have a relationship with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ is the missing peace. Our hope for peace is in a personal relationship with God, not in any political revolution. Christians have a soundbite that captures exactly the nature of the problem. It's become trite to us because we've seen it so much on bumper stickers over the years. It's that two-line play on the words no, N-O, and no, K-N-O-W. You know what I'm talking about. It's the bumper sticker that says no Jesus, no peace, but then K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. Sometimes the answers to the most complicated issues are very simple. Finding the missing piece in life is a matter of knowing God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' rejection by the religious authorities is anticipated by the reaction of the Pharisees. And so in verses 39 through 44, you miss the missing piece when you dismiss Jesus. Everyone in the crowd understood that Jesus was claiming to be their king in fulfillment of centuries of Bible prophecy. The Pharisees were offended by that claim. And so in verse 39... Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I'm not suggesting that you ever be rude. That would not be spiritual. But you ought to be so exuberant about the Lord in your own way that at least occasionally unbelievers want you rebuked. That somebody complains about you and wants you rebuked. When I was a young Christian, I was a salesman, and uh, one of the things I did is I'd go around to the offices of my clients and I would leave my card on their desks if they weren't there so that they knew I had made a call on them. Well, I found this resource. It was called The Good News, and it was a little just half-page fold-over that uh, had good news stories from the world at large, stuff that you don't hear on the 6 o'clock news or read about in the newspaper good things that were happening to people around the world. And then in the back corner of it, in a little section, it always preached the good news about Jesus Christ. It gave one or two verses and said, you can meet Jesus. I mean, it wasn't really even so much in your face. It was just there. Well, it wasn't long before I was called into my supervisor's office. And I had no idea what it was about until I saw on his desk my little good news uh, handout with my card stapled to it and he held it up and he goes we're getting complaints about this from your customers they don't want you preaching jesus christ in the workplace and first of all i was really offended i was upset i was angry i wanted to jump across the desk and throttle him and i thought that would be rude and the lord spoke to me and and he just said look gene you know they're paying you and uh, just back off and start wearing christian ties which I did, you know, and different stickers and things like that. Uh, but it was interesting. I was rebuked for really for, for sharing the gospel. And I really think that you need to work on being rebuked more often. You should be getting rebuked on a regular basis in a nice way. And so, you know, wear a Christian tie. Put some Christian literature on your desk. Carry your Bible around with you everywhere you go. People start noticing things like that, and it, and it forces them. You know, people always say, well, I, I have a hard time sharing my faith. I don't, I, I'm, I'm nervous. I don't. Do some of those uh, non-direct things, some of those passive things. And it, what a great thing, if, and I mean this sincerely, if you get rebuked for doing it. 
How interesting it is for somebody to have to call you in to their office, let's say, and say, you need to quit preaching the greatest news of all time and telling people what a change Jesus has made in your life. Let them be miserable if they want to be miserable. You know, that kind of a thing. And it's, it's really, it's interesting. You can go home rejoicing. Oh, what happened today? I'm so happy I got rebuked for preaching the gospel. They won't let me wear Christian ties anymore. My boss said if I wear another Christian tie, he's going to hang me with it. Switch to Christian socks. I mean, Christians are very resilient in their wardrobe choices, you know. And uh, just do it. Some of us have gotten away from that. When you get to be an older Christian, you're so much more mature, you know. Well, when I was young, I used to dress like a Christian, but now I just let my silence preach the gospel. Well, no one knows you're a Christian, so what's all that about, you know? So get a little crazy for Jesus out there. I mean, put a bumper sticker on your car and obey the speed limit. <laughs> Man, wouldn't that be a riot? Okay. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. This was Jesus' way of letting them know that what was happening at that very moment was something so important that it affected and involved all of creation. It was in one sense an exaggeration, of course, giving stones a voice. But once you understand the scope of what was happening, I think you'll agree with Jesus. Here's what was happening. Skip verse 41 for a moment and look at verse 42. Jesus said, if you had known, uh, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Then look to it, a phrase in verse 44 where Jesus says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus called that moment in time, the time of your visitation and this your day. He was talking as if this was a particular day that could have and should have been anticipated and even commemorated. It was in a truly amazing sense. Palm Sunday, that Sunday that we call Palm Sunday, that first one, involves one of the most astonishing passages in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, in chapter 9, there is a prophecy. It was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. It's called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. We don't have time to go into it or through it, but I can tell you that it exactly predicts the future history of Israel. In it, there is a mathematical computation of days that told the Jews the exact day on which their Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem and present himself as their king. Here's the verse that does that. It's Daniel 9:25. Gabriel's talking to Daniel. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. Now the Jewish and Babylonian calendars used a 360 day year. And so 69 weeks of 360 day years totals 173,880 days. And so there's a lot I'm telling you here without going to Daniel, but the bottom line is that verse says there are 173,880 days from a certain point in history, and on that day, the Messiah will ride into Jerusalem. In effect, Gabriel told Daniel exactly that day. Now, scholars argue about the exact date of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 
depending upon the particulars of certain ancient events. They argue about which calendar you should really use and what to do at the zero year and how to calculate everything. Okay, fine, that's fine. There there may be some miscalculations in that, but still it could have been calculated and closer to that day it would have been easier to do. And Jesus knew the date. He certainly understood the date. And the Jews could have and should have at least known the general period of time, if not the exact day. Remember when Jesus was born. Wise men came from the east. They came to Herod to ask where was the king of the Jews. Herod called a a bunch of Jewish scholars to find out where the king of the Jews, the Messiah, was to be born. They told him without hesitation he would be born in Bethlehem because they had read it in the Bible. Even though they knew exactly where Jesus would be born and could answer immediately, they did absolutely nothing about it when they were told he was born. Similarly, the Jews could have and should have known the day their Messiah would arrive, but they did nothing about it. Now can you see why the stones themselves would cry out if the crowd remained silent? It was a day anticipated from eternity past by all of creation. It is one of the great moments in the history of the world. Instead, the Jews would dismiss Jesus. They would miss their peace. And for them, it would be particularly awful. Now back to verse 41. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. In front of the multitudes, while they were shouting their blessings, Jesus sobbed convulsively and wailed these words. This wasn't late at night after his entry. This wasn't alone on the Mount of Olives. This was simultaneous with the exultation of the crowd. Jesus, on that donkey that had never been written, began to convulse and sob and wail these words. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. They will level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know this time of your visitation. Jesus saw their immediate future. After rejecting him in around the year 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legions would come and in camp around Jerusalem, besieging the city. The Jews in Jerusalem would be mercilessly slaughtered. Many would be enslaved. They would be scattered as a people throughout the known world. Their scattering would continue from that siege up until our own time. It wasn't until May 14 of 1948 that Israel would have a national home again. And every day since that day has only magnified their plight as a dispossessed and despised people. Convulsive sobbing and words of wailing were appropriate. The Pharisees in our story, and later the Jewish religious authorities, would dismiss Jesus as their Messiah. When you dismiss Jesus, you miss the missing peace, peace with God. Anyone and everyone who is not a follower of Jesus is dismissing him. You are dismissing his claim to be the only one who can give you peace with God. Whether you openly dismiss him or you do so from indifference makes no difference. No Jesus, no peace for you. Now, wait a minute, you say. In verse 42, it says that these things are hidden from their eyes. 
it would be better to say that you are blinded by sin and don't see them. It's not that you can't see them or that God won't let you see them. Keep this in context. A lot of people, they pull out verses like this and they say, well, there's some people that can't get saved. God hasn't chosen them. They're, you know, they, they really are never going to come in contact with the gospel because God has blinded their eyes. Think about what just happened. Jesus said, in effect, I am going to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 right in front of your eyes. And the crowd got into it. They understood it. They said, all right, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You're the man. And the Pharisees, the unbelievers, understood it and rejected it. They said, you rebuke your disciples. We don't believe that you're this Messiah. But they all had the truth in front of them and had to react to it. And so they were blinded by their own sin, not by God. God was revealing himself to him. He went to great lengths to reveal himself to them. This is one of the few times in the life of Jesus Christ that he didn't want to hide or to hold back or to not let himself be known. This was publicity central. He goes, I'm going to make, I'm going to let everybody know who I am and what I'm about. And so God is not blinding anyone's eyes. They are keeping their eyes shut in the face of overwhelming truth. Nothing is more certain in human history than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most uh, uh, provable uh, episodes in human history. And yet people, scholars, they step back from it and say, well, we don't know. Who knows? And what they mean by that is we don't believe anybody really rose from the dead. We don't believe Jesus was who he said he was. We see all the evidence and the claims, but who really knows? And what's blinding their minds is their own sin. They don't want to submit themselves. They're not willing to take off whatever it is they're wearing, whether it's intellect or finance or pride, and throw it at the feet of Jesus Christ and say, tread on that. I I care nothing for it. All it is is keeping me from heaven. Tread on that. I give it to you. Use it if you can. Uh, If I pick it up and it's ruined, so be it. At least it gave you glory. And that's what my life is about. They don't want to give God the glory. They want to sit in their smugness and talk about these things that are simple and true. There are moments in the life of every unbeliever when Jesus is being revealed to them. If they shut their eyes to the truth, then Jesus will remain hidden from them. That's what that means. And so we ought to be about the business of earning the rebukes of people so that they will open their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these things. We appreciate all the symbolism of your entry into Jerusalem. It was a tearful entry, Lord, and necessarily so. And Lord, for all your humor... And all the, the, that we see even in this episode, Lord, with the donkey, you were a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You felt deeply, cried mournfully, both as a man and as God. And you did it for us, Lord, so that we might know you and have the peace of God, so that we could know that peace was made between God and man and that we could experience a personal peace and go on walking in the fruit of peace as it's produced in our hearts and lives and then share that with others 
whether we get rebuked for it or not, Lord, we want to be exuberant about it because blessed, oh, and to, how happy and to be blessed are we to know the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring these things home to our heart, Lord. It's not Palm Sunday on our calendar, but it can be Palm Sunday in our hearts as we recognize your kingship again. And I pray, Lord, that we would just cast our clothing at your feet. Those things that we've given to you that you are treading upon and we are discouraged about it, I pray that we would see you using them for your glory in ways that we don't quite understand and that we would continue blessing your name, continue rejoicing. Lord, all this is to say that we love you and we praise you. Amen. All right, let's stand together. God is so good. We'll be together again Wednesday morning. Men meet in the cafe for a time of uh, prayer and fellowship, 6.30 to 7.30. Wednesday night, here in the sanctuary, bring your kids, but come anyway. It's not just for kids, just a neat time of Christian fellowship. Uh, Thursday afternoons, 3 o'clock, bulletin folding. Man, is it fun. It's a blast. We're having a great time. Uh, If the Lord tarries, we'll see you again next Sunday. We do believe that the Lord could come back at any moment. Nothing, we talk about Bible prophecy, nothing needs to be fulfilled before Jesus comes to take his church off of the earth and to heaven. A lot of other prophecies unfolding before our eyes. The world's eye is on the Middle East as we're, you know, seeing this withdrawal of Israel from Gaza and all of that. There won't be any lasting peace until the Prince of Peace returns. In the meantime, we want to share that with others. Some of the guys will be here after the service to pray with you. If you're not a Christian, come forward and let them lead you in a prayer of asking Jesus Christ to forgive you your sins and to give you eternal life. Maybe you are a Christian and you just have needs you want to share with us or just a time of prayer. The guys love to do that. Just come forward and, and uh, as soon as I'm, we start the song, just start forward and, and uh, we'll take care of that. We love you. God bless you. Amen. Time again Remind me what's true So I'm falling again For you Jesus You died upon the cross For my sin So I'm falling again